Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Siddharth Kara. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well, Josh. How are you? I'm good. And as I said just before recording, I've, I've been preparing for uh, what I anticipate to be a, a difficult, challenging, but very necessary conversation. And if it's okay with you, I'm going to recount what brought me to you. I mean, most immediately, I think a lot of listeners will have heard you mentioned by Adam Hochschild when I spoke to him about King Leopold's Ghost, his book. But it goes way back before that. So longtime listeners know that I first brought Adam on for reading his book, Bury the Chains, on the British abolition movement. And abolitionism has long been, since around that time, for me, a role model for the movement of sustainability. And I'd have to go into a lot of depth to describe all the parallels and the utility there. But then after many, many years, I at last, I, I can't believe I didn't read it earlier in life, but I read Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And that led me to read his bigger book or, or more, you know, more well-known book, more renowned book, King Leopold's Ghost, which was about slavery in the Congo and King Leopold of Belgium making, well, I highly recommend people read both Heart of Darkness and King Leopold's Ghost. So when I was speaking to him, he mentioned you in the podcast. And so I think listeners are like, oh, can't wait to hear from him. And so I came to you for your book, your recent book, Cobalt Red, but then also found Modern Slavery, a Global Perspective, and another book, Sex Trafficking, from, I guess in, that one was from um, six or seven years ago, Inside the Business of Modern Slavery. And so slavery, and also regular listeners know that abolitionism in the United States and the 13th Amendment have been very big, and all these things factor in your books. And it's really gut-wrenching, the stuff that you write about, and absolutely necessary. And I guess I'm talking a bit, but when I read King Leopold's Ghost, something about it read like it wasn't just something that happened a century and a half ago. It felt modern, partly because I was around that time preparing to read this book, When McKinsey Comes to Town, which I don't know if you know that book, but it seemed like that stuff wasn't in the past. And your books show that it wasn't. Yeah, that's right. You know, slavery never really ended. I mean, it did on paper, but it, like a virus, uh, found a way to mutate and persist and thrive and continue to uh, infect human civilization. And, you know, I've been focused on various spaces of modern slavery for more than two decades now, traveling the world and documenting slavery and child labor as they exist in the world today. And, you know, the inescapable reality or truth is much less has changed since slave trading days and colonial times and that we might care to admit. And I think that that uh, essential truth really, really revealed itself in all its grim glory when I spent time, months, in fact, on the ground in the DRC, documenting conditions in cobalt mines, because it was like I was back in uh, Leopold's Congo. You know, but for the calendar, very little had changed. And in fact, there were times looking around, it's, it was difficult to know what century I was in, because the people at the bottom of 
the cobalt supply chain, the rechargeable economy supply chain, were being violently and brutishly exploited for their labor to ransack and, and pillage this essential resource cobalt that was that's needed for all these rechargeable batteries uh and so it was just the latest chapter in a long long story particularly in the heart of africa of the pillage of that part of the world uh, by the global north i'd like to start with a bit of background because this is not the usual thing that people do i think you went to columbia business school also right we both got our mbas at the same place oh yeah 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 it's it's i took a bit of a uh a sharp left turn, not not too long after graduation. But yes, I was on a different track back at that time. And I wonder if you could bring us up to speed on that. And also something, I want to get people in the framework here. A lot of people say, wait a minute, Josh, I'm not holding a whip. I've seen the pictures of people who are tortured back in, say, 1850 in the American South. And that's not what's happening today. I'm not doing that. But to me, the issue is, not just the people holding the whip, but the people buying the sugar and the home market that's driving this. If no one bought the rubber, the ivory, the sugar, the cobalt, the profits wouldn't be there and it wouldn't be happening. And so one doesn't have, I mean, and I'm saying this, obviously I'm on my computer, which has a lithium battery in it, which means it has cobalt in it. But this is not to say that I'm not to try to make people feel guilty but I'm also saying that not saying that you're that you can't do anything about it. Yeah. So I want people to have the feeling of there is something they can take responsibility for, and the more that they feel that way, the more that they want to. At least, okay, I'll speak for myself. The more that I feel that way, the more that I feel I want to learn more so I can do something about it. Yeah. So let's let's set the context here because I think you're exactly right, and ultimately it is up to people like you and I and your listeners to create positive change in the world. If the, the stakeholders at the top of the chain, be they sugar barons from centuries ago or tech barons today, if they, if they were going to set things right, they would have done it by now. But it never worked that way. It was always people of conscience and a community of conscience that formed and galvanized and dragged humanity forward to set these injustices right. So let's just talk about this current context and what role consumers have to play so every single person listening to us right now, and in fact, a few billion people around the world cannot function for 24 hours without cobalt. Cobalt is an essential component to almost every lithium-ion rechargeable battery manufactured in the world today. So that means every smartphone, every tablet, every laptop, every rechargeable gadget and gizmo, and, and increasingly and crucially, almost every electric vehicle. So we can't function without cobalt. Now, Three-fourths of the world supply of cobalt comes from a, a very small patch of the Congo. So we're all participants in what's happening there. And what's happening there is an apocalypse. It's a complete catastrophe, an enormous invasion of the human rights of the people in the Congo and the destruction, contamination of their environment. Uh, they suffer injury, uh, public health catastrophe, insult, hazard, and death, scrounging cobalt out of the ground for a dollar or two a day. Now, we're all participants in that, but we've been made unwitting participants. When you bought your smartphone, or I bought mine, or our tablet, or someone buys an electric vehicle, they don't think to themselves, ah, I'm, I'm, when I plug this in, I'm plugging in the, the death of Congolese 
children. No, we've been forced into we're participants in that chain. And so it's up to it's up to us once we learn about that horror to then ask ourselves, now what are we going to do about it? Because as I said, if the companies were going to treat the people of Africa with the same rights and respect and dignity as they treat people at corporate headquarters, they'd have done it by now. And if they were going to preserve and protect uh, the environment in Africa as they go ransacking and mining and gouging the place, uh, they would have done it by now. So the question is, what are our obligations? And I think that's the question you're asking, and that's the important question to ask, and it's a very personal question. But we're on the the other end of that supply chain. And I think as we become aware of this horror, as we become aware of this latest chapter in the heart of darkness, it's important that we all take stock of our role and responsibility. And some people will form and galvanize and catalyze a human rights movement, just as E.D. Morrell and Roger Caseman and George Washington Williams and others did uh, 140 years ago. And others might just say, you know, uh, maybe I don't need to upgrade my phone this year. Because every time I do that, I'm creating more demand for cobalt in the system. And maybe I can make do for another year or two without upgrading my phone and participating or uh, exacerbating this harm that's taking place in the heart of Africa. And along the way, maybe I'll spread awareness and agitate for these companies or to contribute to movements that are forming to compel these companies to sort out their supply chains. So now we have a frame for people to listen to it from a place of responsibility. And if they, this is not to guilt and shame, although it's not to silence one's conscience either. Can you tell us how you went from, how you got into this uh, about the left turn? Where were you before the left turn? What caused the left turn and what sustained it? Well, okay. So we have to dial it back to my undergrad days in order for the left turn to make sense. But I was an undergrad at Duke University in the early 90s. And at that time, uh, there were stories on the news about this eruption of violence in the former Yugoslavia. And I remember watching the news, uh, feeling really perturbed by this, really troubled by it. And here I was spreading about, you know, term papers and exams. And there were people being subjected to mindless violence. So I thought, oh, okay, I, I need to contribute in some way, do something about it. And, you know, being a young, idealistic college student, I thought I had it all figured out. So I actually uh, put together a project with some fellow students and a faculty sponsor to go volunteer in a refugee camp in the former Yugoslavia, which I did volunteer in the Bosnian refugee camp in the summer of 94. And I had all these plans and ideas of what I would do when I got there. And I realized they were all completely inadequate to the task that this problem was so much bigger and more complicated than my meager mind could even understand. But but there was one thing I could do because I was there and that was listen. And I listened that summer to hundreds of Bosnian refugees as they told me of the horrors they had been subjected to. Uh, Serbian soldiers who would come to village, village after village, ex- execute the men and round up women and girls and take them to rape camps and brothels across the region. And that was something I'd never heard of. It just was outside of anything I had been exposed to, and I didn't really understand it. It didn't really make any sense to me how that kind of thing could be happening. 
Anyway, I came back, I graduated, moved to New York, won my way into investment banking and got an MBA in, uh, at Columbia. And, you know, that was the track I was on. But I, there was a moment where I just thought to myself, is, you know, is this why I've really been put on planet Earth? Is it help wealthy people get even richer and do these deals and pad my bank account? Or is there some other purpose to my life here? And the experiences of that summer came back to me. And I thought to myself, were these kinds of things still happening? And then I did some research on the very nascent internet at that time and saw these things called human trafficking. This is the late 90s into the year 2000, 2001. And I thought, you know, maybe there's some contribution I could make. Let me just take a stab at it. And I'll probably realize once again, I'm completely ill-equipped to, to do anything meaningful, but at least I'll know I tried. So I left everything packed, put my stuff in storage, and just jumped into the field with no real experience or background in how to go do human rights research. But I spent about five months in Southeast Asia, South Asia, Eastern Europe. And slowly but surely, I I realized there was something enormous happening and that maybe I could make a contribution in some way. I didn't know how, but what I saw, what I witnessed really took hold of me. And I came back and planned my next trip. And then before I knew it, you know, one year became two, became three, became 10 and 20 and managed to publish a few books along the way. And then, you know, then I really got on the track of this being what I think will be the trajectory and course of of my life and time on this earth. And if I can make some meaningful contribution to this long arc of efforts to combat traffic and enslavement of human beings, and I think will be a life well spent. What was there? I don't know if I'm jumping in too deep here. And if you don't want to answer, that's fine. But that was like the factual account. What was the emotional experience? It was, uh, you know, the things I saw on that first research trip, the people I met, stories I heard, just devastating. You know, you live a relatively sheltered life in the West, go to school, go to college, get a job, work, go to dinner parties, and all of that business. And even if you, you know, read and you're educated and so on, you you don't really, at least I certainly didn't have any sort of real sense of how the conditions under which most people in this world live because they're pretty bleak and grim. Uh, and there's so much inhumanity in the world, there's so much violence and so much of it. And this gets to the intersection with this persistent history of slavery that, that just dogs this planet. There's so much inhumanity whose purpose is not cruelty for cruelty's sake, but profit. And and you know that's how it intersected with my MBA and my investment banking days because you know I understood profit, I understood economics, I understood the spreadsheet, I understood profit and loss, and when you transpose all of those economic concepts and this drive for profit onto the ability of people with power and resources to trade on the misery and vulnerability. Of, of people who don't have power resources, you know, that's the dynamic of slavery. And then the stories those people have to tell if they feel they can share them are, are just really devastating. I mean, there's so much suffering out there. 
And the fact that, and th- this gets to the importance of understanding the, the, the trajectory of slavery into the modern era, because there's so much exploitation across the bottom end of the global economy in shadowy labor markets, child labor, forced labor, sweatshop labor, low-wage labor, and then to outright forced labor and human trafficking and slavery. There's so much of that exploitation taking place at the bottom of dozens and dozens of supply chains, whether it's the clothes we wear, the food we eat, the shampoo we use, the makeup we put on our face, and then, of course, our gadgets, rechargeable gadgets and cars. So much is tainted by this capitalist drive to profit by trading on and exploiting the vulnerable for their labor and their resources. When you say the vulnerable, I feel like you said capitalism, although to me it feels like colonialism and imperialism, that colonialist powers figured out how to make them dependent, how to control resources so that through, I mean, maybe they'd start off with weaponry or making the land that they needed unable to support them anymore. So now they have to be at the bottom rung of a of a hierarchy that it makes them vulnerable. Like they're not, we have a system that causes vulnerability. And I don't know, one of the ways it seems to show is like, we need immigration in America to do the jobs that Americans don't want to do. Well, I think that gets cause and effect backward. We create jobs because we can force people to do them. And if we, if we weren't doing that, those jobs wouldn't exist. And we wouldn't think, oh, well, how, we, how else we get... I don't know. When I think in the States, I think of more of like uh, people working in renting, renting plants or... Uh, but nothing like on, on what you talk about and going on in, in the Congo. But it seems like an inevitable result of colonialism. It feels like we want to say colonialism was something that was... That was back then. We're not doing that now. But it seems the actors are more corporations than governments, but governments are happy to play along as well. Am I seeing it accurately? Yeah, well, you know, as I said, I think less has changed since slave trading and colonial times than we might care to admit. And instead of kings of nations, it's kings of industry. That's the only difference. And the fact that the, the, the modern global economy is adorned with all these proclamations that Human rights are preserved and protected. Everyone's equal. We we ensure all participants in our supply chain are treated with equal respect and so on. I mean, so that so one could even argue there's a greater hypocrisy today. You know, no one was pretending 300 years ago that Africans were equal to Europeans. You know, they went to great lengths to to justify the inferiority of Africans relative to Europeans. You know, no no one will come out and say that kind of thing today, even if they think it in the back of their heads. But back then, you know. Gosh, the the kinds of things Western Europeans said about uh, about Africa and South Asia, you know, those are savage people. They can't produce civilization in the way we can, and they're fit to be enslaved. In fact, we're just saving them from cannibalizing each other. I mean, it was just you look back, and it's just insanity. You know, no one would say that today, but yet the people across the global south are still treated that way. So it, it's really that you know. You draw a line in, at history, right? Before North Med South, people, people were largely tucked away in their little corners of the planet. Once the folks on the Iberian Peninsula figured out boats that could get past the inhospitable waters of West Africa, and they started making their way slowly but surely 
down the coast and all the way around the Cape of Good Hope and then over to India. I mean, that was that's the moment, that's the period at which history for most of the global south became a history of colonialism, pillage, enslavement. And to this day, there's still this subclass of humanity, largely people of color, largely across the global south who were exploited in servile labor conditions. And they are poor and vulnerable because of the legacies of all those centuries of pillage and exploitation that came before. Some stuff that I've read from historians to say, and it seems compelling, that we tend to think that racism led to slavery, but it's more that slavery led to racism. That it's not like Europeans thought, oh, they're subhuman, let's go enslave them. It was, they started slavery and then through a process of maybe, I mean, I came across this quote, the most damaging thing you can do yourself is to do something that you believe is wrong. Because when you have this internal conflict, you have to convince yourself that what you believe is wrong is actually right. And that leads you to say things like, oh, they're subhuman. And I think that, I'm not sure if this is something you've covered, but that historically did, did we lead to seeing, did the concept of seeing people as worth uh, exploiting come from like first came the practice and then came the belief. Because if that's the case, I feel like that's happening today. But the beliefs that are coming out are things like, oh, what I do doesn't matter. Only governments and corporations can make a difference on the scale that we need. Or, you know, they did it. They're the ones who should fix the problem, not me. It seems like the nonsense, if that's the right term, that people believed back then, the same psychological mechanism that created it creates different things in us today, but it comes from the same place of, I don't want to, I don't want to believe that I'm a bad person. How can I convince myself that I'm so good? Am I on something there? Or am I off? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I don't think it's fruitful for people to think that they're bad. I, I mean, I think most people are generally good people. I mean, the question is whether we're apathetic or not. Once we learn of something, you know, once we learn of an injustice, and I understand people get caught up in their lives and it's hard it's hard living, it's hard making ends meet, it's hard just getting through your own challenges. And, you know, am I supposed to now try to figure out how to ensure that young girls in Bangladesh are going to school instead of sewing buttons on my shirt? You know, then you throw up your hands and say, I can't, I can't solve that problem. I can't even understand that problem. And, you know, fair enough. But I think, I think the question is, or the point of this is, you know, for each of us, there's, there's some measure of effort we should undertake once we learn of these injustices. And you know, for some people, maybe there's just not much they have the capacity or resources or ability to do. Maybe the only thing they can do is make that shirt last a little longer, make that phone last a little longer, and not contribute to the demand-side pressures that, that lead to exploitation. I mean, I think that's the bare minimum that we can do as, as consumers. But many of us, are positioned and are capable of contributing in some way, you know, if nothing else, spreading awareness, listening to this conversation and then sharing it with other people, you know, awareness is the starting point. It would not have been possible for the British abolition movement and all the abolition movements that fell as dominoes after that to even 
be sparked, let alone achieve success without spreading awareness. I mean, there were mass awareness campaigns. These are the horrors of the slave trade. You know, people had to spread that message. I didn't have social media with which to do it. And the same goes for Leopold's Congo. You know, so much of the work was starting with missionaries and then later with people like Casement going down and getting ground truth and bringing it to the world saying, this is what's happening. And as people learned about it, you know, many were outraged, just as they were when they learned about the conditions of the slave trade. Many were outraged. And so the question is, what do you do with that outrage? As I said, some people, fair enough, may not be in a position to do much, but I think at a minimum, you think about your consumption habits and then anything above that, whether it's contributing to an existing movement, spreading awareness, or if you're in a position to do it, you know, roll up your sleeves, get down in the dirt, gather some truth and bring it to the world. That's that's invaluable, but of course, a tall order for many people. So I think spreading awareness is, people might think, you know, what's the point? But it's everything, because eventually you hit a tipping point where there's enough people who know, and it reaches enough people who are in a position to maybe lead a movement to address these injustices, that that's exactly what happened. So you bring these stories out. Are you seeing things happening? I mean, the book hasn't been out a year yet. So although your other books have been out for some time, actually, one of them, both of them came out this year. No. So Cobalt Red came out about six months ago. My other books go back five, five and 10 years. But Cobalt Red, I mean, I, even in these six months, let me tell you, there has been a wave of awareness that's washed over the world. I mean, I've received tens of thousands of messages from people who read the book or maybe heard a podcast that I did and have sent a message to say, I had no idea. And then I'm really going to think about upgrading my phone or, or maybe I won't buy an EV just yet. And I'm going to tell everyone to read this book and, and what else can I do? How can I contribute? You know, people are outraged because they don't want to be made unwitting participants in this kind of appalling treatment of people in the heart of Africa. Most people don't. So I've seen, I mean, I've received the message that I've seen people start to organize. Nothing major has changed in terms of improving conditions on the ground yet, but it's it's still early days. But I know, I know we'll get it. I'm trying to think. I think I last bought a cell phone 10 years ago and all my computers I've used off a of Craigslist but I do have this big battery that I anyway. Well, you're you're probably you know the top point one percent of of people of minimizing their demand side pressure on rechargeable batteries. You know, if your phone is ten years old and your laptops are are secondhand, you're doing your part. I mean, if everyone did that, it would alleviate a lot of demand side pressure. It wouldn't solve the problem. It certainly wouldn't replant all the trees that have been clear cut in the Congo. It wouldn't bring back the lives that have been lost, wouldn't unpollute all the water and dirt that's been so so contaminated by unsustainable mining practices. It wouldn't repair all the shattered spines and so on. That's the work that needs to be done by stakeholders at the top of the chain, by accepting responsibility for the uh, this feverish scramble uh, that they've, they've initiated. And that's the next phase. Once the world learns of the horror, then we come to the point of addressing it, and we we absolutely will get there as sure as Case with Morel, uh, Conrad Williams, and the rest uh, did it in their day. 
Yeah, I share it because of the studies that show are the various things that motivate people of you know monetary incentives or doing well that comparison with their peers seems to be one of the most effective ways. So once someone knows that someone else is doing something, say using less power or polluting less, that motivates them more than almost anything else. So that's why I shared it. Yeah, I think peer pressure is uh, is our a powerful force, and I think it applies at the corporate level too. You know, one of the things I've said is it just takes one major consumer-facing tech or EV company to take a stand and say, you know what, we're putting boots on the ground to make sure that the people in the Congo who are digging out copper and nickel and cobalt and lithium are treated with the same rights and respect and dignity as people in headquarters and that mining is done sustainably. If if one of the major tech or AV companies got on the ground and did that, then perforce everyone would be dragged along because they're immediately in a disadvantaged position. I mean, imagine you're a consumer and you've got one company saying, here we've done it right. We are not contributing to the misery of the people of Africa and the destruction of their environment. Here's the evidence of it, independent, third party, verified. And then there's everyone else. You know, they then they have to do it. And it just takes the courage of that first mover. Or a regulatory pressure. You know, that's the other way change happens is top down, but more often than not, it's it's bottom up. It will be consumers and a social movement. Uh, that will force one of these companies, if not a peer group, to get on the ground and treat the people of Africa the way they say. This is the key. This is the key. They all claim, all these companies in their public filings and PR statements, they all claim that they ensure 100% that every participant in their supply chains is treated with respect and their human rights are preserved and protected all the way down to the mining level. All the tech and EV companies will say this, down to the mining level. And then you get on the ground in the cop, and you realize none of that's none of that's true. And this gets back to another parallel between old world and new world. You know, back in the day, slave traders and plantation owners would say, no, you know, this the Atlantic crossing is not that bad. Don't listen to these crazy abolitionists. Uh, the Africans have lots of room and they eat well, and they play games of chance on deck and drink cordials, and, and they're very happy to leave the war and strife and misery of Africa. They work in pleasing conditions. You know, this is like a tech and EV company talking about the human rights of African children being protected, that they're in school and not in mind. I mean, it's the same level of fiction. And so it took truth seekers to get down in, you know, Clarkson going around and interviewing ship crew and surgeons and there's a, no, no, actually, this is what's happening. None of that is true. They can't even sit upright. And the mortality rates are X percent and, you know, on down the list. And the same with Leopold. You know, it took, Leopold was, uh, well, you know, maybe there's one odd force public guy who goes a little crazy. But other than that, I'm bringing commerce and civilization, the benefits of commerce and Christianity. That was the catchphrase. To the people of the Congo, and, and then when... You know, missionaries started reporting severed hands, so on. Leopold's machine said, no, no, you know, wild boars sometimes bite off hands. I mean, you the, you can't even make this stuff up, the, the level of fiction and nonsense. But it's the same today. 
it's just another parallel between today and the old world. And, and truth seekers have to dispel these fictions and flood the world with truth until the stakeholders at the top of the chain, you know, knock it off with, with the nonsense and the fiction and, and accept truth and then address it. I want to throw in a couple other things that they also would say, we have every incentive to keep them healthy because we want them to work when they get to the, the Americas. And also the voice of, of people like Aquiano, the the uh, slave narratives from the people who actually yes. experienced it. Which, and yours are, I mean, they're some of the hard, really hard parts to read of, of your accounts. Of well, that's what I've tried to do is, is you know, the, the truth, it comes with the voices of the people experiencing, you know, not not from intermediaries. And I've tried it as much as possible to be a pastor. You know, the people of the Congo for the last 15 years were screaming into an abyss. No one was hearing them. No one was listening. Or at least not enough people were hearing them or listening. And so with Cobalt Red, I just, I tried to be, I tried for that book to be a vehicle to bring their voices out into a world that can't function without their suffering. Because that's, that's all that matters. That's the truth is the experience and voice of the people at the bottom of the chain, whether it's Equiano and the slaves from centuries ago, or the people casement documented when he spent a hundred days in the upper Congo. It was is a testimony driven investigation. Or, you know, so many others that do ground research and human rights research to bring the voices from the ground out into out into the world because otherwise there's no connection. You know, how is it a consumer in New York City or London or Hong Kong supposed to know what people in the Congo have to say? You know, there's no connection between those two. There is in terms of minerals, but not in terms of voices and humanity. So that's what investigators and researchers and journalists have to do is to, to forge those connections. And also some perspective that we today look back then and say, I hope people, I mean, I would imagine most people would say, I would not buy that sugar. I mean, maybe I would buy some of the arguments for a bit, but I mean, we would say it's clear. We see with clarity what the right, I think by most people's morality, what the right thing to do and what the wrong thing to do was in terms of buying the sugar, buying the cotton, buying the rubber, buying the ivory. And today, I think we present it as more complicated but future generations will look back and look at it as much more clear than I think we see it. And I think that would, us looking back and knowing that history enables us to make choices more clearly and more easily than we would if we just thought, well, look, if I have the phone, then it's a better life. If I don't, then it's worse. And so uh, kind of makes it easier to just to buy the phone. Yeah, look, you know, of course, it's impossible now. We've been made completely dependent smartphones to conduct daily life, right? let alone tablets and laptops. And that's just the way it is. And sure, fair enough, it brings so much connectivity. It brings so much productivity to our lives. I mean, it's hard to imagine a life without a smartphone. You know, we all, of course, you and I are old enough that we had no problem living without smartphones 15 years ago. I, yeah. You know, but now, of course, it would be virtually impossible. But that doesn't mean we have to be made participants in the human rights catastrophe at the bottom end of the supply chain of that phone. And it's up to the companies that are sourcing these materials, sourcing the minerals, 
and manufacturing the phones to ensure that they do the thing they're doing. And we have the benefit situated in the year 2023 of centuries of history showing us how not to do it. You know, a few hundred years ago, people didn't have that benefit. We have the benefit. I mean, we have voluminous testimony and evidence and contemplation and investigation and of how not to conduct an economic relationship between the top and the bottom of the chain. So it shouldn't be complicated at all, actually. It's altogether very simple. Figuring out how to design a smartphone is probably 10 times more complicated than making sure kids are in school as opposed to toxic pits in the Congo. That's that's a simple problem to solve if, if you simply decide in your mind that it's worth solving. I meant to ask you when you said if one company flips, so how much more would that cell phone cost compared to the others? Nothing. Are we talking double the cost? You, you wouldn't even... No, no, you, you wouldn't notice it. It's a rounding error. It's a rounding error on the company's balance sheet. I mean, then the numbers here, I'm not saying this is true of every of every product, okay? You know, the difference in cost between a shirt made with child labor and some well-paid adult proper working conditions might be a few dollars, you know? And to some people, that's a meaningful amount. I get that doesn't justify child labor. It just means the company needs to swallow that loss of profit uh, in order to make sure that they're not employing children. But we're not there yet. With a phone, oh man, it's a de minimis expenditure of resources. I mean, for the companies at the top of this chain, I mean, that are sitting on bank accounts that have hundreds of billions of dollars, they make they make enough money in a week to probably solve 90% of the harm taking place in the car. And, and let me be specific, because it, I know someone would say, oh, Sid, Arthur, you're just saying that. You know, it's easy to say. You know, I've run the numbers. Uh, number one, the number one reason that children are working alongside their parents is because they, the family unit doesn't make enough money that they have food to eat and that they can pay the school fees of $5 a month. $5 a month, okay? And that's because they're paid piece rate wages. That means based on the amount of cobalt ore they gather by weight. And it's pennies, it's pennies. So the average mom and dad uh, makes about a dollar or two a day, a day. And then the kids can tack on another 50 cents to 80 cents. And so that family unit, depending on how big it is, you know, we're talking five, six, seven, eight dollars for the family for that day. And for that day, that means they could eat. And they probably have some scraps of clothes around their bodies and some rudimentary shelter. But nothing more than that. Can't pay school fees. Probably don't have a good quality of meal to eat, but it's enough. It's a difference between eating and not eating that day. Now, if mother and father were instead paid a fixed wage, like if you and I go and get a job, we have a salary. Okay, company gives us a salary. So long as we work, we come to work on time, we work properly, we're respectful, and so on and so forth. We're paid a salary. Mother and father were told, "Here's a contract. You work eight hours today. You do this work." you'll get $10 for the day. That difference between $2 for mom and dad and $10 between mom and dad 
is the difference between having plenty of food to eat, proper clothes and shelter, and kids in school. These are now, multiply that by a few hundred thousand people who are scrounging for our cobalt, it's a de minimis sum. We're talking only millions of dollars across a year, maybe tens of millions at most, for companies that make tens of billions. Okay, so it's a de minimis sum. And that's each company makes tens of billions. Now, that keeps kids in school. It certainly reduces child labor significantly, it also helps support and strengthen communities. People can save money so they can absorb income shocks. If they get sick, they can afford medicines. There's a lot of knock-on benefits from paying people a basic fixed wage of $10 a day. That's a little more than a dollar an hour. The other major component of harm is toxic contamination. So cobalt is toxic to touch and breathe. And so there's a massive human public health impact birth defects, thyroid disease, cancers, respiratory ailments, dermatitis, so on, all because of the toxicity of this ore. Everyone should have basic PPE. Gloves, mask, boots, hat, goggles. One set of PPE per person, de minimis expense. And it's also a one-time cost. Maybe they need a few uniforms in the year because... There's breakage and tearing and salt, but whatever. It's a diminished expense. And more to the point, every person who works in mining in the global north would have said PVE. So why are the people of Africa worth? So those two things there that don't even cost that much on an annual basis would reduce immense amount of volume. It doesn't replant trees and uncontaminate the water. That's bigger work that would cost more that has to be dealt done at some point. But tomorrow... Tomorrow, if those two simple things were done, three-fourths of the harm being caused on a daily basis to the people of the Congo to supply us with cobalt would be eliminated. And it would mean almost nothing to the cost of the phone or the tablet, let alone the fifty dollars or $100,000 electric vehicle. Of the messages that you're getting from the people, are any of them coming from inside these companies? And if they are, are they coming from the executive level? Are you reaching people there? No, so I have not heard from anyone directly, but they all have heard of Cobalt. That I know. And by the way, they all knew what was happening on the ground in Congo before Cobalt was published. Maybe they didn't know the ex- exact scale and severity of it, but they all knew what was happening on the ground in Congo. Just couldn't be bothered to actually fix the problem because there was no awareness or pressure to do so. Now that the book is out, People are agitated. I mean, I see it on social media. I'm getting messages. People are agitated. And I've started to hear in some public statements, some of these CEOs and marketing teams kind of talking about Cobalt Red without talking about it directly. I think the last example I heard was at the last Tesla shareholder meeting. I mean, for pretty much the first time, Elon started talking about the conditions of Cobalt Mine. And he said, you know, we're going to put a webcam at the mine. And if any of you Tesla shareholders see a kid walk in, you let me know. We'll deal with it. And I'm not saying he read Cobalt Red, but, you know, he's starting to talk about child labor in the Congo not too long after the book came out. And I know a lot of people, a lot of Tesla shareholders, a lot of Tesla consumers message me and email me. And so the word's gone upstream. Now, that statement is just so silly. It's not even worth 
rebutting. But these mines are the size of cities. And sticking a webcam at like one gate is meaningless. So it's kind of like a flippant, silly response to the problem. Apple has started talking just just this year about trying to recycle more cobalt. You know, so I know the message is getting into their into headquarters. Uh, we're not at the point where anyone's choosing to engage directly and in a meaningful way and actually solving the problem. But I, I have no doubt we'll get there. Are there people who are, I mean, I've focused mainly on sustainability and I'm trying, I believe I'm starting a movement of people dramatically changing their mindsets with a long-term view or hopefully short-term view of changing culture to embrace polluting less, depleting less, to view sustainability as something desirable that will improve their lives as well as improving the world. And I haven't really focused on labor conditions, although I do make that part of what I talk about. I haven't talked about slavery. I mean, usually I talk about slavery. I think I talk about it in the context of abolitionism, the 13th Amendment, and Thomas Clarkson and Wilberforce. And are there movements afoot here are there people taking what you're doing and taking it? I believe your role, as I understand it, is to make this known. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I have a pretty good sense of what it would take to solve this problem or solve most of it. But I don't think I'm the person, I'm certainly not positioned to implement these things, but it will take companies and governments to do that and a massive consumer movement to compel them to do it. I think the role for me has been to try and bring the voices of the Congolese people to the world. And I I hope Cobalt Red is, is helping to achieve that. I mean, there are other people, journalists who got on the ground, NGO NGOs have been talking about this for a long time, but you know, but it just it wasn't breaking through. And I think thankfully, you know, Cobalt Red came out, it was well received, it receives reviews and, and big publications. And that really helped spread this message. And and I think it's going to grow from there. And eventually, someone, the, today's Morel is out there. Today's Caseman is out there. They're there. Today's Alice Seeley Harris, uh, you know, the one who took that photograph of, uh, of Insala, looking at it, the severed hand and foot of his five-year-old daughter. It went viral, just outraged the world. You know, she's out there. Those people are out there with the talent, the drive, the force of will to drag the rest of us forward until this is set right. I mean, that small batch of people formed a movement that that brought down the genocidal regime of a king. And not just any king. I mean, one of the most devious mastermind genius, evil genius kings of his day, of the colonial period. I mean, to somehow finagle his way as the smallest little European non-power to taking personal control of the largest colony, geographically anyway, in Africa, what became the most profitable colony in Africa, was an act of, of evil genius. And to, be, to have a reputation as a philanthropist. And yeah, and to somehow cloak all of that avarice and violence and hoodwinked the world, at least for a period of time, into thinking he was a philanthropist. You're exactly right. And yet, 
And yet he was brought down by truth and the force of will of those who, who would not stand for it. And, and so those people are out there today that as they learn of this horror, they will do today what Celia Harris and N.K. Schmidt-Morell, uh, Twain and Conrad and, and all the rest of them did back then. Now, I know, I kind of know what the answer to this is going to be. Are you still kind of surprised that more people don't drop what they're doing? You know, not everyone can, and most people can't, but are you surprised that more people aren't dropping everything and making this their biggest thing? Or not, not dropping everything, but really making this a huge part of their lives. I mean, for me on sustainability, it's shocking, but also, it's not shocking, but it's also shocking that more people aren't like, you know, this has got to be the most important thing I work on. I mean, some days I feel that frustration, sure. I've, you know, because I've seen very viscerally just how severe this inhumanity is and how enormous, painful violence is being committed against these people. And for what? So we can plug in? You know, it's just, when you reduce it to that, and that's the bare truth of it. It just, it's impossible to to not feel everyone needs to just stop what they're doing and agitate and push until this is set right. You know, so I have, I have those days where I, I feel that way. Wait, don't you hear what I'm saying? Don't you hear what they're saying? But I also get the other side of it. You know, we're so bombarded with noise and life is hard. You know, for most people, life is really hard. Getting through each day is really hard. I mean, especially, look, you know, these last few years on all of us, and especially those who are just making it paycheck to paycheck. So I, I get it. You know, it's just like I can't, I can't take this. I can't absorb it. I can't do anything about it. I'm just barely keeping my head above water. You know, Godspeed. I hope someone else figures this out because it does need to be figured out. I understand that side of it, but of course, some days I just think, because I know the tipping point will be when enough people agitate loudly enough and take some stand. You know, back then, it was eventually a sugar boycott orchestrated by, you know, because those days women were largely in the home as homemakers doing the cooking. And they, they organized a sugar boycott that really put a lot of economic pain on the plantation owners and the and the slave owners. And that was a an integral part of catalyzing change. You know, it ground a lot of people's profit to a halt. And if we just all stopped right now and said, no, not buying another gadget or car until this is set right, it would probably happen pretty quickly. And that's not to say abolition was a you know, raping success and suddenly everything was just fine for everyone in Africa and on the plantations and so on. But, you know, you it was a huge achievement and advancement, at least on paper and aspirationally, for human rights. And the the jettison of a repugnant system of labor and system of exploitation. And we need to do that again today. Yeah. I wish sometimes we'd all just boycott all this stuff because it would probably happen pretty quickly. At least there'd be some measure of success. But I completely understand how that's not not realistic. Well, there's a lot of people who are struggling to make ends meet. 
but they're not buying a whole lot of, they're not buying the latest iPhone. I mean, the people, there's a lot of people who are not struggling to make ends meet and they're spending a lot of money on these things. Yeah, well, and that, those people certainly are not buying the latest electric vehicle, that's for sure. You know, those are, those are by and large pretty expensive. And, you know, that's the, that's part of this whole hypocrisy. You know, I completely believe in preserving the environment, in, in achieving climate sustainability goals, in, in trying to protect and preserve the earth for our children and grandchildren, pursuing these aspirations coming out of Paris Accords and COP26, 27, and so on. Absolutely, yes, yes, and yes. But insofar as an important component of the achievement of that goal is a transition from gas-powered cars to electric vehicles, it is being built on a hypocrisy because it's unleashed enormous violence on the people in the heart of Africa and massive environmental destruction in their part of the world. And you can't save our environment by destroying theirs. We have to just pause for a beat. Absolutely pursue all these goals. They must be pursued. But we just need to pause for a beat and sort out the supply chain because you can't you can't compel this transition to electric cars if the bottom of the supply chain is tainted by so much suffering and environmental damage. Yeah, you can't say that you're living in a democracy or practicing a free market with slavery. And just because it's not within the borders of your country, if I'm getting worked tight. Uh, we're at time and I really value this conversation and I have so many questions that I want to continue. I hope that I get the chance to to bring you back another time. Yeah, we'll talk again. Absolutely. And I'll be very happy to. But, you know, that last point is an important one. You know, we don't live in an era of advanced human rights and universal declarations of human rights if the inputs to so much of our economy and daily lives are tainted in the violation of human rights of people over there. They don't count less than us. Their rights aren't worth less than us. We've certainly articulated it on paper uh, that they don't. But if the economic system treats them that way, then it's a lie. And, and the same goes for this transition. You know, it's not, you can't save our environment by ransacking theirs. And you can't bestow a greener planet to our children by forfeiting the lives of their children. And that's the problem. That's the problem that has to be fixed. And one of the big messages for me is, so having disconnected my apartment from the electric grid, having canceled my account with Con Ed, having, I haven't emptied my garbage since 2019, things like this. I could, I think a lot of people think, well, that's huge deprivation and sacrifice. It looks like that before the shift. After the shift, it's freedom, it's meaning and purpose, it's joy and it's fun, far beyond what, you know, I've lived as everyone else did before. You know, I've filled up my garbage every week and I said, whoever dies with the most toys wins. And I never didn't think twice to just turn on the toy. <laughs> Once you start living off the grid, using a toaster is really, it burns burns through power like crazy just for a piece of toast. And I had no idea. I was 
You said flippant earlier. The word that comes to mind for me is insouciant, that we're so insouciant. And it sounds like carefree, but it's also careless. And the other side is it's so much like, Josh, I don't want to have to think about everyone every time I do anything. But actually, that's a really great life. To think about everyone with everything you do is actually wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. I think it may not make sense, but the more people we have in our minds with each decision we make, the more enlightened and free we are. So I agree. And I've really enjoyed the conversation and I'll, I will look forward to continuing it in our uh, next installment before too long. Siddharth Kara, thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.